This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. In this program, Pandora's Toolbox, The Hopes and Hazards of Climate Intervention. Author Wake Smith. Living with Uncertainty, retired psychologist and author Carolyn Baker. Winter Heat Waves, Case Study with Oxford's Nicholas Leach. When science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson looked into the climate future, real science led him to expect mass heat deaths and then maybe a desperate move to block the sun. It is called geoengineering, where humans try to restore the climate we live in with technology. Not too many people love geoengineering, but a growing chorus of philosophers, scientists, and engineers are weighing out the options. Enter Wake Smith with his coming book, Pandora's Toolbox, The Hopes and Hazards of Climate Intervention. Wake taught a groundbreaking course about geoengineering at Yale. This is the clearest, most accessible book I've ever read on the subject. Wake Smith, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you were a high-level executive at Boeing Aircraft, then you went into the investment field. How did you end up tackling climate change? I guess I ran out of desire to be a businessman before I ran out of energy, and so I um, was uh, eager to do something else with my time and whatever talent I have, and climate strikes me as perhaps the issue of our era, certainly one of the biggies, but I became increasingly clear in my personal study of the climate issue that simply reducing, uh, reducing emissions to net zero, as the world is now increasingly rallying behind, is unlikely to be the end of the climate problem. More likely, reaching net zero will merely be the end of the beginning. And so I have become a researcher as a second career into climate interventions of uh, the sort that you mentioned in your intro that may be required primarily after we reach net zero rather than as an alternative method by which to reach net zero. And so I am now a researcher and author and professor in that field. The book begins with a half dozen chapters explaining our predicament as the planet heats up, and the science you cite is current and it's sound, and regular EcoShock listeners probably have that background direct from the scientists. But you conclude eventually humans may be desperate enough to try anything? I wouldn't quite phrase it that way, and I wouldn't be supportive of the climate emergency framing that is in the Kim Stanley Robinson book you mentioned either. This is something that requires a great deal of research and caution and thought as we enter into it. And it may, by the way, be that once we do all that research, we decide it's just a bad idea. That's entirely uh, within the realm of possibility, we haven't done enough science yet to know the answer to that. But it may at least prove that we can't turn the spigot of emissions off fast enough to keep a climate that we would want to live in. And so future generations, in addition to trying to get to net zero, as we and our generation are beginning to do, future generations may also need to repair the climate that has been ruined before they uh, uh, came to it. And they also may need to find ways to be able to thrive in that changed climate while they repair it. 
And solar geoengineering is a tool by which perhaps future generations might do that last thing, be able to thrive in a too-hot world while they try to repair the climate. Why are you so doubtful about the most natural solutions, for example, planting more trees to help cool the earth? Well, you can't see it on radio, but I just fell over laughing. It is my goal uh, as a researcher to kill trees. Now, I don't literally mean trees. I hug trees like other people. But killing the idea that trees will solve the climate problem, that I do seek to do, because it's a naive idea that doesn't square with any science. A tree does remove carbon from the atmosphere. That's absolutely true. But the tree falls over in a decade or a century and leaches that carbon back into the atmosphere. So it isn't a permanent store of carbon. The natural fate of forests, by the way, is flame. We, in the modern era, have tried to prevent that. But that's what forests naturally do if we leave them there. So we don't even necessarily need to wait for the tree to fall over and die to give its carbon back to the atmosphere. It may do it in a forest fire, which, again, is a perfectly natural bit of the carbon cycle. But the problem we have climatologically is that it's not that we're taking carbon from trees and putting it in the atmosphere and that's creating our problem. It's that we're taking carbon from the uh, deep within the crust of the earth carbon that was essentially sequestered there permanently, we're burning that and putting that carbon into the atmosphere. And so we're building up more carbon in the atmosphere than uh, has been natural. And the way to solve that problem is to take carbon out of the atmosphere. That's, That's good. That's what a tree does. But we need to bury that carbon deep in the crust of the earth. A tree doesn't do any of that. And so trees are are mostly a very marginal, fragile element of the prospective climate solution. They're not going to get us there. Moreover, trying to plant trees in places where there are no trees today means that we're taking land that is devoted to some other use, such as agriculture, and now trying to make a carbon bank out of that land. There just isn't very much land on the earth that people are going to be eager to do that with. If there's a place where a tree can grow, but there's no tree growing there now, it's because some industrious human cut that tree down to make a farm or a house or a road or some other thing. And so there's also a, a, a very severe land constraint that limits the degree to which trees can be a carbon solution. So hug every tree you, you can find. Good, good on you but they are not going to be the solution to the climate problem. In 2015, we had Dr. David Keith on Radio EcoShock talking about geoengineering. At Harvard, David Keith is a world leader in the field. Wake Smith, what is your relationship with him? David is a mentor of mine. When trying to get in this field, I discovered a paper of which David was a co-author and essentially went to Harvard and told him that I thought the paper was in error. And his response politely was, gee, if you're so smart, then write a better paper. I'm not, I guess I'm not sure I wrote a better paper, but I wrote a paper that I think better illuminates that particular issue. And since then, David has been an advisor of mine on much of what I do. Uh, so I, I seek to 
you know, collaborate with David on things. But let me be clear, David Keith is the leader of this field, and I don't consider myself in his sort of class. Uh, he's been an extraordinary researcher in this field. Tell us about the direct air capture operation that David has led in Squamish, British Columbia. I can tell you bits about his operation, but I suppose I would prefer to not so much comment on his company, but comment on direct air capture more generally. I earlier referred to the fact that future generations will likely need to repair a climate that our generation is currently ruining for them. And the primary way to repair a broken climate in the future or a ruined climate, a too hot climate, will be, as I earlier said, to find ways to remove carbon from the atmosphere and bury it not in the biosphere, as trees would do, but uh, bury it deep in the Earth's crust. But the magnitude of the industry that would be required in the future to capture all of that carbon from the atmosphere and bury it in the Earth's crust that industry would be roughly the size of the entire fossil fuel industry today. So all the oil, all the gas, all the coal, that's the size industry that we would need to suck carbon out of the atmosphere in the future at the rate that we're currently putting it into the atmosphere today. Well, the fact is we're doing almost none of that carbon capture from direct air in an industrial fashion today. I say almost none because Climate Engineering, the company that David Keith founded, along with a, uh, a handful of other companies, are in very early stage technology development uh, activities to try to build the sort of direct air capture infrastructure that we would need. But we're, we're decades from being able to scale that technology to the magnitude that would be necessary to really make a dent in the climate problem. We do learn in your book that the company Canadian Carbon gets millions from Bill Gates and big oil, like oil sands financier Murray Edwards. Occidental Petroleum and Chevron sit on the board. That sounds sketchy to the Greens. What is in it for big oil? A couple of things. If the world is going to go in the direction that it needs to go in, which is to move to net zero emissions, the world is going to have to find alternative ways to create the energy that it will need in the future. And oil companies, and for that matter, natural gas and coal companies, they could conceive of themselves merely as those things. They're an oil company and nothing else, in which case the future that we're envisioning is that they're going to go out of business because we've got to stop recovering and burning oil from the Earth's crust. An alternative way that they could conceive themselves is energy companies that provide one form of energy today but may provide some other form of energy tomorrow. And at least if they conceive themselves in that way and if they can make that very difficult transition from being a, um, you know, a fossil fuel company to being a, a wind and solar power company or whatever, that's at least one transition that such companies could imagine undergoing. Yet a different potential motivation, but I should make clear I have no connection with the fossil fuel industry whatsoever, so I don't have any special insight as to what they're thinking, and I certainly don't have any financial uh, you know, uh, dog in this fight. 
But an alternative vision that, that I could imagine they have, I think it's precisely why people like Occidental Petroleum are involved in uh, the direct air capture that they're involved in, is that it may be that there is some transitional period of time when we continue to burn fossil fuels, because we haven't yet found the next source of energy that, that can fully replace them, but we try to address the climate problem by capturing the uh, carbon before it's emitted to the atmosphere. And so that's not direct air capture. That would be flue gas capture. But flue gas capture is, in fact, what we need way before we're going to need direct air capture. And so to the extent that fossil fuel companies begin to get into the carbon capture business, that may be a way to continue to provide fossil fuel to the world without heating the world. I don't want to overlook the, the prospect, though, that some fossil fuel companies may be doing this cynically. Some of them may be doing this for the purpose of greenwashing their reputations. All of that uh, is certainly also a very possible part of the mix of uh, motivations that such companies may have. But make no mistake, the world desperately needs to move forward in terms of its, uh, its uh, technology and infrastructure by which to capture carbon. And so sort of irrespective of whatever motivations they may have uh, about investing in carbon capture technology, if they are investing in it, uh, that will, uh, e even with, with impure motives perhaps, that will nonetheless be a path forward for that technology. And this is technology that the world will desperately need. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. You are listening to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Wake Smith, author of the forthcoming book, Pandora's Toolbox, The Hopes and Hazards of Climate Intervention. Pandora's Toolbox covers a huge field, and it's in good, clear detail, but our radio time is limited, so let's skip ahead to the tool you bring to the table— Wake, you know what it would take to put a fleet of planes up very high and keep them there. Tell us about the climate fix that requires a tireless armada of planes. Let me do that, but let me first note that the book is equally as much about carbon capture, and it's carbon capture that I'm sure we will need, both from flus and eventually from direct air. I'm candidly less clear that we will need stratospheric aerosol injections, which is what you're referring to, but I'm by no means clear that we won't need that. I worry, in fact, that future generations will demand that, and so we need to develop technologies of all sorts for this problematical climate future, including carbon capture technology, but also probably including ways to deflect out a little bit of the incoming sunlight. And I'm, I'm going to repeat that stratospheric aerosol injection is not an alternative to uh, decarbonizing. We still need to decarbonize. The problem, though, is that if it takes us a long time to decarbonize, and I'm afraid it will, I'm a, a, an emissions pathway pessimist, it may be that we turn off the emissions spigot way too late and we get the atmosphere way too full of greenhouse gases. And so even though we've now turned off in this future that we're imagining, we've now reached net zero. We've turned off the emissions bigot. We're no longer emitting. 
The problem is that the, what informs the climate is not the amount of emissions we do in any given year. It's the cumulative emissions we've ever done since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. That's what informs the future climate. So I would think of it as a bathtub. It's not the amount of water coming out of the spigot that informs the climate. It's the level of water in the bathtub. And if we stop filling that bathtub by, say, 2050, as lots of net zero pledges aspire to do, then we would probably, in 2050, still have an acceptable climate. Whereas if it takes us to 2100 or beyond to turn that spigot off, we will have continued to fill the bathtub for all those additional years, and we will end up with a climate that I worry future generations will find to be unacceptable. And if future generations find the climate in their era to be unacceptable, again, they can engage in carbon capture and try to reduce the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, reduce the level of water in our proverbial bathtub. But doing that may take centuries. And so we're talking about having future generations live for centuries in a climate that they will consider to be too hot. And it's not merely that one can turn on an air conditioner and go indoors. There may be whole portions of the earth that have billions of people living in them today that will no longer be capable of supporting agriculture. And so you could have huge impacts on both humans and ecosystems in that too hot future world. Well, if the world found itself in that too hot future, it would suddenly demand ways to remediate that situation. And stratospheric aerosol injection, by which the Earth would absorb a little less sunlight, is the most plausible tool that we now know of, despite all of its risks and potential drawbacks. It's nonetheless the most plausible tool that we know of, by which a too hot future could cool the globe. Discreetly towards the back of the book, with the help of forming Boeing engineers, you published designs for aircraft modified to spray sulfur aerosols into the stratosphere. You know those will show up on Chemtrails conspiracy websites. Look, here's the plans from Boeing. Proof. The government's spraying us, right? Uh, it seems pretty brave to just go in there anyway. Well, perhaps it is, but I'm at a point in life where I can try to save the world and <laughs> People don't like it, they'll, I'm sure they'll tell me that. You suggest that I slip this discreetly in the book. I've published these papers to the whole world uh, before writing the book, so there's nothing discreet about this. But to be clear, I'm not uh, advocating deploying this. I am advocating researching it. And one element of the research, and frankly the research that I can do as a uh, uh, former uh, commercial aviation and aeronautical executive, part of the research that I can do is exactly that sort of research, to try to figure out how the world would actually go about doing this. If we wanted to put this gunk up in the sky, how would we do it? And uh, the world's best paper at the time I came into the field had proposed a variety of different platforms by which you might uh, loft this material into the stratosphere. And so my, many of my papers have tried to get much more specific about that. What would, is it guns or rockets or balloons or airplanes or other means by which we would get the stuff in the sky? And 
the likely answer is it's airplanes. How big an airplane? Uh, what would its characteristics be? Where would it need to fly? How many of them would you need? And therefore, what would the cost of all of this be? That's the thrust of, of my most meaningful research. And it does seek to make more comprehensible what this sort of intervention would look like. And making it more comprehensible, more concrete, helps narrow the region of darkness on a lot of the questions that concern people about this. Could it be done covertly by some billionaire off of his island in the Pacific? Well, the answer, as soon as I come to it and illuminate how big an intervention this would be, the answer to that is no. This is a huge enterprise that would be immediately detectable by the outside world if anybody attempted to do it. And so getting rid of that concern that, you know, some person or country could do this covertly, as the chemtrailers imagine, as soon as you do some math, it becomes quite clear that that's silly. But that the fact that we illuminate what this might look like doesn't sweep all of the problems uh, about it off of the table. It just means we can worry about potentially real problems rather than potentially silly problems. Making it personal, you asked your bright 21-year-old Yale students, what are they willing to give up to make the climate future safer? And they said? They essentially shrugged. It's as if the question hadn't occurred to them previously. And to be clear, these are climate-concerned college juniors who competed to get into this seminar. So this wasn't a thoughtless group of, of students. But what it illuminated to me was that not even very climate-concerned people believe that solving the climate problem will require personal sacrifice from them. People imagine that it's big, bad Boeing or uh, Big Bad Exxon, or Big Bad General Motors uh, that, is sol- that, that is creating the problem, and that we need to go uh, berate those parties and tax them and, you know, uh, demand changes from them. But if you say to people, well, where did you go over Christmas, and did you fly there? Uh, the, you know, the, the answer is generally yes, or if they didn't fly there, it's because it wasn't very far away. But people aren't yet, by and large, making personal sacrifices to solve the climate problem. People are not in favor of things like carbon taxes, which would require some personal sacrifice. And P.S., I don't love taxes any more than anybody else does, but I'm afraid what that episode illustrated to me is that the world doesn't really understand what solving the climate problem will require. It will require a personal sacrifice. It will require paying something for something that is now free. And that something is the ability to drive your car down the road and vent your CO2 out the tailpipe into the atmosphere. That venting of CO2 from your tailpipe has a cost for future generations, but we today aren't paying that cost. And as soon as we ask each other to pay that cost, people will push back. And it's not crazy that they do push back. I'm not criticizing that exactly. But the sort of radical changes to lifestyles that would be necessary to quickly decarbonize 
turn out to bring unwanted consequences to the present that people aren't voting for. And so you're, you're quite right. That class at Yale demonstrated to me the distance that all of us need to travel and have not yet traveled mentally to understand what solving the climate problem will really mean from the standpoint of personal sacrifices that we will all need to make. How far along is stratospheric aerosol injection research and testing of it? Uh, no, nowhere. <laughs> I'm literally one of the guys in the world farthest along in it, and I'm, I'm a rookie. So we're nowhere near being capable of doing this. It is still the, the amount of field experiments that have been done is exactly zero. It's all still in not even in the lab. It's, it's uh, research papers being done uh, in universities, but, but we've done no field testing whatever. And that's one of the many reasons why we're not right around the corner from implementing this. And once again, doing field tests may demonstrate that it's a bad idea. I hope that it doesn't demonstrate that, because if I'm right about where we're headed climatologically, people in the future are going to need solutions to the climate problem that we are exporting to them. And if stratospheric aerosol injection turns out not to be a viable solution, that takes away one of the best potential tools in Pandora's toolbox from the future. And so the future is going to have to find other tools. We have been speaking with Wake Smith. He is the former aviation executive turned investor, now dedicating himself to one question, what can we do about global warming? Coming out in March, Wake's new book is Pandora's Toolbox, The Hopes and Hazards of Climate Intervention. Wake, thank you for spending the time with our listeners. Very kind of you to have me. Carolyn Baker is a one-woman whirlwind of communication, as I've said in the past. She is on top of world news as she publishes her daily news digest. Trained as a psychologist, Carolyn is author and co-author of more than a dozen books. She provides life coaching, leads workshops, and online courses. From Boulder, Colorado, Carolyn Baker, a warm welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Well, it's great to be back, Alex. I haven't uh, touched base with you for a while, so it's really refreshing. Been a couple of years, I think. And at that time, your motto on your newsletter, at least, was uh, speaking truth to power. You changed that to bearing witness to the darkness and the light. Why? Well, I think we are in a different phase of our of our experience now, and, and that is to really focus on holding the tension of the opposites, meaning we've got this global crisis on the one hand, and we've got all of the good things that are happening to us, the good things that are in humans, the good things that are in the Earth community. And as we deal with this very, very troubling time, with all of the challenges that we're living with, it's really important that we can hold both. So my Daily News Digest is focused on bearing witness to the darkness, absolutely, and also uh, it offers a section on inspiration that most news digests do not offer, uh, because I feel like after people have dealt with some of the, the more disheartening news stories, they need that inspiration, so I try to provide that every day. I know you're working on a new book, and the title will be Undaunted, Living Fiercely into Climate Meltdown in an Authoritarian World, 
And last week, you shared an excerpt which really nails it for the rest of us. We can't count on certainty anymore. Why start there? I think it's very important to start there because a lot of people are looking for some kind of normal, especially after the last three years of dealing with COVID. You know, I heard a a news journalist yesterday on TV saying, you know, I'm done with it. It's over. You know, I'm sick of COVID. I'm going back to normal. Well, good luck with that because a, a pandemic may actually never end. We don't know, but there's so much mutation of the viruses and so much happening in the ecosystems with the planet, with our past destruction of the planet that is causing a lot of these diseases to appear. So we just don't know what's going to happen next. And normal isn't really there anymore. So we have to live in a different way, not looking in the rearview mirror as if we can have normal again. Billionaires say, well, we have to get off the planet quick. There's no time to fix things like world hunger or justice or climate change. Are we trying to enter this fantasy land, or is it being thrust upon us? So much is being thrust upon us, and it's really asking us to pay attention. And we have to be very discerning about where we get our information. You know, are things peer-reviewed? Is this a really reliable source? And that's part of, you know, in my new book, I, I have a whole chapter on we're kind of going crazy as a culture, My chapter is a culture decompensating into psychosis. You know, we've got lockdown, isolation, less contact with people, the fear of getting COVID, health workers burning out, committing suicide, PTSD, trauma, teachers leaving the profession like flies, social media, alternative facts, disinformation, and social division where some family members can't even talk to each other, vaccine wars. You know, we're a culture that is mentally coming apart at the seams. And so right now, we need every tool that we can muster to help us navigate this craziness. You know, I, like, I used to call my podcast Islands of Sanity in Seas of Chaos. I've got a blog now on Substack by that name. Because I think that's really what we need to be doing, creating islands of sanity in seas of chaos. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. Carolyn Baker, with her background in psychology and wisdom teachings, talks us through uncertain times. There is, though, a real world that intrudes with facts. I mean, when millions of people die of COVID, 96% of them not fully vaccinated, we can draw conclusions. Or if your home burns down where fires have never come before, maybe it could be climate change. Is reality acting like a psychological shock for Internet citizens? Yeah, I think it is. And what's really tragic is a lot of people are digging deeper into the rabbit holes. And they're not discerning, they're not getting their facts from reliable sources, and they just keep going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole, and things just get crazier and crazier. I I think that's a big piece of what's going on, absolutely. And that's just really bad for us emotionally. 
Well, speaking of that, a recent poll in Canada found almost one in four people are seriously depressed these days. In Europe, we see violent street protesters clash with police and gun violence in America is cresting again. As a person with a lot of knowledge in psychology and a longtime world watcher, do you think the would-be rational society and, and even business is teetering on some edge? Yeah, I absolutely do. And, well, of course, there's always the climate edge. We don't know what climate is actually going to do next. This volcano in Tonga, which was like the equivalent of 110 Hiroshima's, that rippled tsunamis around the world. I mean, that's absolutely unprecedented. And things like that, in terms of the climate, may lie ahead of us that we, we cannot even imagine. So there's that, but there's also the authoritarianism that's sweeping the planet and people in this divisive state that I was just talking about, it really slapping us beside the head. And, you know, I really do think that in the United States, which is the only place I can really speak for, you know, the 2024 election promises to be, I think, an inflection point because I do expect Trump to run again. And there's a serious possibility that on the heels of that, or even before that, we might really see a civil war in the United States. We are, unlike any other country, absolutely armed to the teeth. And as I published this morning in my Daily News Digest, a piece from Umair Haik uh, from Medium, who talks about, you know, there's only one party that has all the guns, and the other party, the other folks, don't have any. We have a grotesque amount of guns in this country and people itching to use them. So anything can happen, I think, around the 2024 election in terms of a massive divisiveness in this country that may result in a civil war. Oh, boy. So then normal becomes just a a nostalgic word. But I I do remember times when we had enough information, enough solid expectations that we could decide on a career and and where's the best place to live. These days, we seem to have too much information, not enough real facts. And I wonder if we're losing the capacity to know the difference. Well, I think for some people, that's clearly true. I mean, when you have you know, a, a presidential administrator's, a president, one of his staff people, like uh, I think it was Kellyanne Conway, who back at the beginning of his administration came out with this term, alternative facts. I mean, that says it all. Where do you go from there when people believe in alternative facts? I mean, what a mind warp. And it's very hard to be discerning these days. It really is very difficult. Old people do have a reputation for retreating into the past, seeking childhood memories, as we know. But now, the present is this ruthless pandemic, and the future looks pretty dangerous and wrecked. I wonder, are masses of people retreating into the past, trying to reconstruct the old normal? Well, you know, that's one of the hallmarks of fascism. That's what Hitler did with the people in Germany, You know, oh, let's look back to the nostalgic past. We had such a wonderful culture before these Jews and other foreigners got here. You know, it was pure. It was wonderful. And, you know, let's get back to that. Well, I can help you get back to that. 
we'll get rid of all the people who are different from us. And so I think we're really on a slippery slope when that happens, and it's happening. Well, as climate ramps up, a billion people live near the seashore where these powerful storms will bring in the higher seas, and humans will retreat, and then they'll migrate, I guess. But the European tradition is is sedentary, they call it, based around a solid home. People who moved around were suspicious, like the gypsies. But now you, Carolyn, and me, and, and hundreds of thousands of other North Americans have emergency evacuation bags near the door for part of the year. And we may have to go with little notice when the wildfires come or the floods and, and when the power goes out. I mean, it's no accident that Ford makes a popular model called Escape. <laughs> I mean, that's a fundamental change for a lot of our listeners. How are we supposed to cope with our fear of uncertainty itself? Well, I just finished, uh, well, I'm not actually finished, but I have been working this afternoon on one of my chapters in the book called At Home as a Refugee. Many of us have become and will become climate refugees. Being exiled by nature, of course, to a different living arrangement in a distant location is traumatic at worst and disorienting at best. So I'm asking the question and, and providing some tools for how do we discover our inner home in the midst of potentially heartbreaking disruption? And see, as you know, I've been writing for the last 15 years around these topics, and I always come back to the inner work that must be done inside of us. Yes, there's deep adaptation that we must do on the outside. There are preparations that we must make, but we absolutely must do this inner work of emotional and spiritual preparation if we have any hope at all of surviving, and if not surviving physically, at least to have the emotional and spiritual stability and support to give and to receive in these daunting times. You do give us clues about how Buddhists and mystics have embraced uncertainty instead of running away from it. Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who just passed, one of the great Buddhist teachers of all time, and many mystics before him, they say, don't run from this uncertainty. Don't try to create certainty in a world where you can't have it. So embrace that uncertainty. And on the one hand, like I said earlier, to be holding the uncertainty and the, the terror that you're feeling and on the other hand, to be enjoying in your daily life the love that is there, the beauty that is there, the deep connection with nature that's available to you, the support and contact with others who are allies on this journey, to be holding both of those realities. And it's very hard work, but it really is what we must do in uncertain times that give us no guarantee of how anything's going to go for sure. Is it possible we are entering a new psychic phase, so to speak, maybe entering a new state of consciousness, or, or hopefully not unconsciousness? Well, I certainly hope so. Climate is smacking us upside the head uh, with that reality, and we're either going to deny or fight it. The climate dilemma is so often couched in, we have to fight climate change. Ignorantly fighting it is not going to get us where we need to be. So 
you know, I talk about denial versus deeply adapting, in which many people who are listening to me are probably familiar with the deep adaptation paper that Jim Bendel published a few years ago in the Deep Adaptation Movement, which is, yes, all of this is real, and we're facing potential extinction, and how do we adapt, how do we mitigate this day to day, and then how do we, as I've said before, prepare ourselves emotionally and spiritually and create the support systems around us to help us navigate this. Would you like to talk about your work on elders or Aboriginal knowledge and maybe the power of older women? I'm about to offer with uh, two colleagues of mine an eight-week series called Coming of Age at the End of an Age. And this is all about eldering and looking at what our role is as we grow older in a world of climate chaos. We might be too old to plant gardens or homestead or march in the streets to protest planetary abuse. So what is ours to do? And really, the main thing that is ours to do, however we choose to do it, is to step into the role and claim the role of elder instead of just becoming older. And in a biological time of limits that we face as we age, how do we expand our vision and our outreach? Because there's always something we can give. There's always some light that we can shine as older people, even as we face our limits. I would encourage people, watch my daily news digest for more information on this series. You can also visit the website of Center for Purposeful Leadership. Definitely, as elders, we have a role to play. The world needs our wisdom. It's time to not just become older, but to truly become wiser. Carolyn Baker, her latest work with Andrew Harvey is Radical Regeneration, Birthing the New Human in the Age of Extinction. You can find Carolyn's workshops, webinars, and her fabulous daily news service at carolynbaker.net. Thank you for keeping going and talking with us today. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. Radio EcoShock. While record-sizzling summer heat waves get the headlines, strange heat in winter is getting increased scientific attention. But how can we know if it's climate change? We investigate the case of a strange burst of hot weather in the United Kingdom in February 2019. But it could have been Beijing's record-busting heat in February 2021, or any number of others. Our guide is the lead author of a new study just published in the top-ranked Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Nicholas Leach is a Ph.D. student working in the Predictability of Weather and Climate Group at Oxford University. From Oxford, UK, Nicholas Leach, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi. British News in 2019 reports sales of bathing suits and shorts were brisk that February because the weather was certainly not. Please describe the unusual hot weather that winter. So we saw extremely high temperature anomalies kind of all throughout northwestern Europe. So, I mean, the focus of what we looked at was the UK because that's where we're based. And so in the UK, we, we saw the first time a temperature of over 20 degrees C, degrees Celsius, had been recorded in, in winter, so that's in between December and February. It was a more widespread event than just the UK, so other places such as France and parts of northern Spain and Central Europe also saw incredibly kind of high temperatures for that type of year. And I, I can talk a bit more about the, the kind of meteorology if you want, but that's kind of a brief introduction to the event. 
Now we get to the frustrating part for the public, though the news crew calls up climate experts and always get the same caution. Of course, we can't say any one event is climate change. And even when winter goes topsy-turvy into summer heat, why can't scientists just say the obvious, that global warming is behind this? The science has been becoming increasingly clear in the, in the field of attribution. I mean, we've, we've had some pretty strong statements recently from the first chapter of the sixth assessment report. So that's the kind of the physical climate side of, of the IPCC's sixth assessment report, which, which did have a chapter on extremes. And the consensus view is that the scientists, like we do know that heat events, both in summer and in winter, are becoming more, more intense, more frequent and potentially will last for longer. But when you move from that kind of general picture of overall heat waves are becoming more intense to to specific events, it does get more complicated because, like, by their kind of nature and by the nature of of the weather, there are many different processes involved in these events. Just because, in general, heat waves are getting more extreme, I mean, that's the basic physics of what greenhouse gases are doing in the atmosphere is that they're warming it up, and that, that will make you more likely to get heat waves. There may be some kind of characteristic of any one event that actually isn't affected by climate change or may actually be affected but in the opposite direction. So just because scientists can now say that, it, like, we, we do know that heat waves are becoming more frequent and more intense, it doesn't mean that that's true of all extreme events. And it, it's very important that we get that right in order to kind of not damage credibility of the science for future extreme events. If, if we say that every extreme event is climate change and then it's found that there is actually, an extreme event does occur that actually isn't climate change. Well, trying to say what is and is not climate change has developed into a new scientific field in itself. I note the American Meteorological Society now develops an issue every year to climate attribution. Why did your team want to try a new tool to sort that out? Often when we think of the methods that people use to try and work out the fingerprint of climate change in these extreme weather events, in order to get a a causal statement about climate change's affecting events, we kind of have to turn to climate models. So you can, what you can do is you can look at trends in the, in the historical record, but that doesn't mean that if there is a trend, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is climate change because there could be some other reason for a trend occurring. So, so what people tend to do is they, they run these climate models both trying to simulate the real world as it happens, so when we, with greenhouse gases and aerosol emissions being put into the atmosphere, and then they do that again in a simulation where you like you don't emit those greenhouse gases and aerosol emissions and you see what the what the difference in those two simulations looks like the reason that we're kind of trying something a little bit new here is that these climate models although they are kind of incredible tools for people to to study the climate they're not perfect and they do have kind of biases that can be important for these types of extremes but what we've done here is we've used weather forecast models because they were able to predict the event that we're actually talking about so that that this means that 10 days before the event happened, so we didn't know the event was going to happen, but 10 days before it happened, the weather forecast models that we've used did actually predict that there was going to be a heat wave, and that was what would eventually kind of become this this February heat wave. And so because these models were able to predict the event, we know that these models are able to give us a a good representation of the event in question. And so we were trying to propose that we could use these forecast models in order to make these attribution steps more robust in the future. In another 2021 study, Linda Van Garderen and her colleagues investigated climate impacts in the 2003 European heat wave and the 2010 Russian heat wave, and surprisingly, they found that those extreme events would have happened anyway without climate change. They used techniques different from yours. How confident are you in their results? So that, that is a study that I've, that I've read, and I think is a, is a really neat thing to try and do. So that, that in a way that what they're trying to do is a little bit similar to ours. So 
one of the features of using a, a weather forecast model for, to study these events is that because it was able to predict the event, then your model has a, has a very similar kind of circulation pattern to what actually happened in the event. Unlike in, say, if you use a climate model to analyze these kinds of events, then often you're, you're kind of, if you're just looking for how much more likely, say, a heat wave is, then you might get lots of, lots of heat waves in your climate model, but they might all, all kind of be for different reasons and have different characteristics. Rather than in a forecast model, you'll get the heat wave that you get in your forecast model, because it was predicted, will have the same circulation pattern that actually happened. And what Van Garderen tries to do is, is a similar thing in which they kind of try and prescribe the circulation so you get a very similar circulation to what actually happened in the 2003 heat wave. And then they looked at what happens if you then change the conditions back to pre-industrial conditions. I think from what I remember of that paper, it was a while, a while ago that I read it, that they did still find that, that climate change did definitely have an impact on those events. But I can't comment so much on, on specific results that they, that they got out because I can't remember that, that too well. Right. Okay. Well, it was a while ago. So the European Center for Medium-Range Weather Forecasts, that's the tool that you used for your new study. We could call it the ECMWF. Does it produce results worldwide or, or just for Europe? So ECMWF, yeah, one of the, the kind of top weather centers around the world. Um, and they, yeah, the, the model that we use is a global model. It is run more than once a day, produces weather forecasts more than once a day, and that's for the whole globe. Part of your increased certainty depends on the weather model first accurately predicting the event ahead of time. But Nick, what if we want to analyze an extreme event which the models were unable to predict? Then what? Yeah, so I mean, that, that is a, currently kind of a, a limitation of, of the approach is that to, to have confidence in the model and kind of a key part of our study is the confidence that you get from using a weather forecast model that was able to, to predict the event. It means that if you, like you say, if you have an event where where the model wasn't able to predict the event, so kind of what weather forecasters call it, call a buff, then it makes it much more tricky to to use these forecast models to study the impact of climate change. And the only way that you can get around that would be to to try and work out what it is in your model that is causing it to not be able to predict these events, and try and improve your model by looking at these kind of places where the models tripped up. So that, that's, that's the one way in which weather forecasters often try and improve their models. It's, it's, it's not very helpful in terms of the, the climate change attribution step, but these, these events where forecast models weren't able to predict them are quite useful to work out what bits of the forecast we can work on in order to improve them for the future. What did your study results find for the contribution of human-induced carbon dioxide to the winter heat wave in the British Isles? So I would preface this with, a, with quite a strong caveat, which is that what we've done is, all we've done is, we've reduced the carbon dioxide concentrations back down to pre-industrial levels. And so this means that that kind of change that we've made, that's the only change we've made to the forecast model. And that change only has a, the period between wh- where the models were started and the heat wave to kind of manifest itself. And so once we've made that change, the atmosphere has to adjust to that change. And so we found that by the time of the heat wave, the atmosphere, although it has adjusted a reasonable amount, it is still adjusting. And another thing that I would say is that, again, this all we've done is change the carbon dioxide concentrations, but things like the sea surface temperatures, so the oceans, as warm as they are in the present day. So the results that we got are not the full anthropogenic contribution to the event, but simply the kind of direct impact of increased CO2 concentrations. And so we found that that impact was sort of up to about half a degree, a half a degree warming contribution to the event. 
You studied the action of carbon dioxide during short-term events in specific localities, and I'm wondering if you can help with another question that's been bothering me since the major forest fires in recent years released megatons of carbon. Does the short-term presence of excess carbon dioxide, say from fires or industrial activity, does it change the local weather and perhaps add to naturally occurring heat waves there? That's an interesting question. I think I, I probably can't comment too hard on that because this, this isn't a kind of my expertise. I would, I would expect that the time scale at which carbon dioxide, so car- like carbon dioxide, the gas rather than carbon, the aerosol, the timescales on which it mixes are quick enough that the carbon dioxide actually won't have that much of an effect on the, on the kind of localities around the fires, but the carbon aerosol certainly can. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. We are looking into winter heat waves and new ways to know whether climate change is responsible. Our guest from Oxford University is Nick Leach, lead author of a new study in PNAS. For a couple of decades, scientists have been warning the greatest amount of warming in the northern hemisphere could come in winter, even more than in summer. And I'm seeing continuing reports of record-breaking heat waves, including one that just hit us here in British Columbia, the hottest weather ever recorded in December in Washington State, Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota. Do you think there's a need for more study and more public understanding of winter heat waves? It's kind of natural that you will get more studies about summer heat waves because the impacts of summer heat waves are are far more visible, uh, kind of the impacts on people and wildlife and also infrastructure. They're far more visible and far more kind of immediate than the kinds of impacts you get from from winter heat waves. So I I probably, I wouldn't necessarily say that I think that we should do more winter heat waves in kind of, if that's going to be at the expense of of looking at the really extreme summer events that, that do have much more visible impacts. But where I think it, it kind of would be really interesting to look at is to, to look at, even though there aren't kind of visible impacts on people, is to look at the, the kinds of ecological impacts that these winter heat waves can have and get a much better understanding of, of the kinds of impacts, the kind of invisible impacts maybe that these winter heat waves can have. So things like the impacts on, on different plant species. If, if, I mean, in the UK, if, if we have this kind of a really hot winter heat wave and some plants start to sort of bud and then you get a frost, what impacts that will have on the, on the long-term kind of ecosystems. I totally agree with you. I mean, if the tree sap starts to run or the hedgehogs come out from their uh, winter sleep, that's not a good thing. And, and we need to know more about what's going on there. So in summer 2021, Beijing broke past 20 degrees C, 68 Fahrenheit for the first time ever in February. Uh, a day later, the city reached 25.6, 78 degrees Fahrenheit in winter, never seen before. And that February heat wave extended down into South Korea. Could your weather forecasting tool be used to assess the role of global warming in that event? I mean, so, yeah, in, in principle, it, it definitely could. This is a question that I've been asked recently with this study. It's is whether it's an approach that works for this event but not others. But I would say definitely in general, and certainly for, for these kind of heat waves, it, it would certainly be an approach that I think would be like a good one to take. I, I mean, you'd have to assess whether the weather forecasts were able to capture that event. But I, I would have said that there's no, no reason why you couldn't apply what we've done to the UK February heat wave to that, that particular heat wave. Well, let's say your technique of medium-range forecast for climate attribution becomes more widely accepted and, and used. What can we use these tools for? So I think why we're proposing this, this methodology 
is because at the moment, I mean, we, we talked a bit about how scientists can be a bit hesitant to say whether climate change contributes to an event straight away and we need to look at, look at the data and a- analyse the event and do all of this. And I think that there's a, there's a real movement towards what is called operational attribution, where you can actually analyse the event very quickly after it happens. And I think that one neat thing about our approach is that weather forecast models, like I said earlier, are run operationally all the time and continually. So, that, so the ECMWF runs this forecast model that we've used four times a day. And so if we can work out a method by which we can kind of attribute extreme weather events using that forecast model without having to change the model too much, so doing a similar change to what we've done here, then you might be able to do operation, like do attribution operationally very quickly and relatively inexpensively because these weather forecasts are run so often and it, it wouldn't be super expensive to when you do have an extreme event to just rerun the forecast in counterfactual mode where we, we wind back the clock like we've talked about and you wind back the clock in the forecast so that you've removed human influence from the, the initial conditions and then compare that no human influence forecast to the real forecast and, and in that way get a really quick attribution statement so that people that aren't left sort of wondering was it climate change? Is there a climate change signal in this event? And don't have to wait those sort of four or five months for scientists to publish a study on it. Another place I think there'd be more room for study is to know how often these things are going to come. I mean, if something happens once every thousand years and it's come and it's gone, that doesn't really matter a lot to human society. But if it's going to happen uh, three times in 10 years, we really need to know that. Where, where are your studies going next? We're trying to carry out what I would call the next step in this in this sort of process of forecast-based attribution. So I was saying that all we've done is we've changed the CO2 concentrations. And what we want to do next is we want to try and remove, so that's equivalent to removing human influence from the atmosphere. We want to remove human influence from the initial conditions of the forecast, which in reality means we, we need to cool the ocean down in the, the initial state the model is started from. And in that way, hopefully we'll be able to provide a more complete estimate of what humanity's influence on, a, on an isolated extreme weather event was within a forecast model. From Oxford University, we've been speaking with researcher Nicholas Leach. He is lead author of the PNAS paper, Forecast-Based Attribution of a Winter Heat Wave Within the Limit of Predictability. Find links to the news and science we discussed in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Tune in again next week. Thank you for listening and caring about our world.